0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: It doesn't matter which streaming service you're on, there's always some new true crime show trending. We can't get enough of these dramas based on the worst of humanity. But at what cost to victims, their families and history? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Later, we're talking about the backlash against one of the biggest shows in the world right now with accusations we're romanticising serial killers. What do you think? Also coming up, we take you deep into the outback to look at the mysterious world of opal mining. You're going to hear from some young Aussies shaking things up. First, though. Hack. The UK uh, has the second lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7. On Triple J. You know, for most of us, global economics is something we'd rather not think too much about until we have to. But maybe now is the time, because you might have been hearing things are not going well for our mates in the UK. The value of the British pound has plummeted this week. They're dealing with all the same problems we are, cost of living, inflation, but at a much greater rate. The US is also battling hard, The UK's desperately trying to fight off a recession, but what happens if that happens? Well, luckily, there are people out there who keep an eye on all of this all of the time. Elise Morgan is one of them. She's the host of the ABC's The Business Show, and she's with us now. G'day, Elise. Thanks so much for jumping in to give us a rundown. Thank you. You can't really say this on your show, but we can say it on Hack. The UK economy has gone to shit, basically. In simple terms, what's happened there?
2: It absolutely has gone to shit, (laughs) uh, David. So in the simplest terms, last week, the newly appointed government uh, astonishingly announced these huge tax cuts, uh, massive, massive tax cuts, and then also plans to borrow more money to fund those tax cuts. which is a pretty bananas thing to do given the state of the UK economy, given the state of the UK government's balance sheet or bank account at the moment. Uh, And so markets were pretty shocked by that here and in the UK and around the world, Uh, and it sparked a collapse of the pound, the UK currency, uh, and a surge in the government's borrowing costs because a lot of people in markets all of a sudden thought, ooh, these people aren't making the most responsible decisions at the moment. We've got a bit, a few doubts about where this is headed. Now, because the market has spoken, it drove the government's interest rate rocketing to a 20-year wow. high of above 5%. Now, that doesn't sound a lot, but when it's been around 1% to 2% and it all of a sudden escalates to over 5 yeah. in two days... Just think about how that would be for your own your credit card or whatever if everything if it doubled overnight. Right. Uh, that's pretty scary. Uh, and it's the sort of increase that would happen over several years. So everyone gets a bit freaked out, particularly those in the bond market. Now stay with me, the bond market is essentially the market that trades debt. Okay. IOUs. I give you a bunch of money, David. I want you to give me that money back in five years' time or mm-hmm. 10 years' time or 30 years' time, and I expect an interest rate. And I expect payments along the way. Yeah. But pretty basic. That's what the bond market does. So the prices of UK government bonds collapsed because the amount of money that people are willing to pay for that just was obliterated. And that was super bad for the people that hold them. And most of those are UK pension funds. Okay. So when those prices collapse, the pension funds have to sell them, which then drives the price down more. Which then creates a bit of a death spiral. So overnight, the Bank of England, which is the same as the Reserve Bank, they're the central bank of the UK, had to step in. They didn't want to. They took a couple of days to do it, but they stepped in and they said, we are going to cut a cheque into this bond market and we are going to buy shit tons of bonds Mm -hmm. to stop this death spiral. Because if this takes hold, this will take down the UK financial system, potentially.
1: So if they hadn't have done that, it would have been bad news. Yeah,
2: Armageddon for financial markets, for the pound, for stock markets, for the bond markets, for the whole thing, an absolute chamozzle. So the Bank of England steps in. It's currently spent about £65 billion so far and they said they will keep buying until the 14th of October and hopefully by that point everyone's regathered. Hopefully the UK government sees a bit of sense and says, oh, maybe we won't go through with those tax cuts And that borrowing program that we thought was a really good idea last week, we'll cancel that and we'll right the ship and everything will find a bit of an equilibrium again.
1: Wow. I mean, so we still won't know for a little while how things are going to turn out, I guess. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the ABC's business journalist, Elise Morgan, about this really, really intense economic situation the world's in right now. Um, We've been talking a lot about inflation this Mm -hmm. year. Huge issue in Australia, of course, things getting more expensive. The rest of the world is battling with this as well, right?
2: Absolutely. Everybody's doing it. (laughs) So the UK and European inflation rates are around 10%. Uh, ours is at around six percent. The US is between six and seven, and it's all fueled by the same things. So uh, when we saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that really disrupted oil markets, and so everyone saw an increase in fuel prices. So petrol, diesel. Everything, things that everyone relies on, yeah. shot up. Um, in the in Europe, in particular, they use a lot of gas for uh, their power, mm-hmm. and so their power prices jumped. Um, we already had really hot housing markets in nearly every market because we had the GFC, we had all the stimulus programs, we had central banks chucking cash at everyone for so long, and then we had the pandemic, and again, governments just chuck cash at everyone, and so that just fueled assets price inflation, so houses, boats, jet skis, TVs, whatever you wanted, you could basically buy it um, if you were in the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. You could buy whatever you wanted and then because of the pandemic, uh, there was a shutdown in a lot of areas in manufacturing, so then there was scarcity, so then people paid even more to try and get the stuff that just wasn't, there wasn't enough for everyone, so that drove prices higher. And now we're in a situation where central banks are trying to cool inflation by lifting interest rates, but some things don't respond to interest rates. So things like healthcare, things like education, uh, things like fuel, uh, things like electricity prices, they're not actually driven by, um, particularly in the current world, they're not driven by everyone just going out and buying as much electricity as they can. That price is inflating because there isn't enough gas or there isn't enough petrol or whatever the case may be. So, people are going to get squeezed on both sides and this is happening around the world where you're not only going to see some some things that you have to buy, healthcare, education, fuel, housing continue to rise, but on the other hand, you've got your interest rates rising as well. And so, it does create a real bottleneck in people's spending and in economies and a real juggle for central banks to try and cool demand and cool the economy and inflation, but not send it into recession.
1: I don't know whether I like the sound of all this, Elise. Ask me if there's
2: any silver linings here. Are there
1: any silver linings?
2: I'm so glad you asked. If you want to visit the UK, the Australian dollar is at a five-year high against the pound, so your money will go a lot further. The same as uh, in Europe, Uh, your money will go a lot further in Europe as well, not in the US. Don't go to the US. It'll be very expensive for you. The other silver lining is that uh, oil prices are coming down. Uh, So with all this talk of recession... All this market uncertainty, uh, oil prices are coming down from the peaks that they were at. So petrol prices, even with the increase in the excise, should be coming down shortly.
1: Oh, okay. Well, there's a little bit of a silver lining. We can look to that. We can be hopeful. ABC Business Journalist Elise Morgan, thanks very much for your time.
2: Thank you. Hack
1: on Triple J. And we got some comments coming through. Somebody says, I'm no economist, but tax cuts and massive borrowing sounds like a super dumb idea when the economy's struggling. Another person says, love Elise Morgan. Keep her on for the whole show. Yeah, Elise could explain everything to us. It's easy to understand when you've got someone who knows what they're talking about.
2: Hack, it's a historic moment, not just for Giorgio Maloney, but for Italy as a country on Triple J.
1: Yeah, we love Italy. It's one of our favourite holiday destinations. Maybe you've been dreaming about a big bowl of pasta, beautiful wine, beaches, those cute little piano accordion players. I don't know, it's a very romantic picture, right? But the reality of living in Italy is a bit different. And Italy is making headlines this week for some big political news. They've just had an election and they've elected a far-right leader. Her name's Giorgia Meloni, is pretty controversial and it's got a lot of people worried there are warnings there could be big consequences for the lgbtqi community for refugees for abortion rights in italy i want to find out a bit more dr gabriele Abondanza is a lecturer in international relations at the university of sydney and he's with us now g'day gabriele thanks for joining us on hack
3: hi dave thank you for having me
1: Italy's elected its first female prime minister, Giorgia Meloni. Some are calling her a fascist. Is she a fascist?
3: Um, well, no, I wouldn't say that she is. Uh, um, it's, of course, uh, uh, quite usual to use headlines that uh, attract people. But no, she, she's not a fascist. Her political party uh, has old roots in the, the post-fascist uh, political landscape of Italy. She is a somewhat traditional far-right politician and the same goes for her political party, but really not a fascist at all.
1: I guess people have that idea because of some of the things maybe she's said or done in the past. Like in the past, she's praised Italy's former fascist leader, Benito Mussolini. He was one of Hitler's allies. She's been really outspoken about against gay adoption, asylum seekers, those sorts of things. I'm wondering, how did she win this election?
3: Well, that is a good question. Long story short, is that uh, people in Italy have sought a different political scenario a different political landscape for a number of years now and this is why they have tried a populist party in the past which is called five-star movement um before that they tried another um uh, far-right anti-immigration party called the league uh, but they all showed a lot of continuity with the previous policies uh, uh, that Italy witnessed. Uh, and so I suppose that this time they wanted to try the only major political party that has never been in power uh, with its own uh, prime minister. And that is Giorgio Meloni's own party. Do we know
1: how young people voted in Italy? Because in Italy, voting is not compulsory. So I'm wondering, was there a big turnout or was that part of the problem as well?
3: No, voting is not compulsory in Italy. It's, it's quite a rare thing, in fact, uh, that Australia has. Uh, and yes, we already know how young people voted. Uh, um, the majority of young people voted for the uh, so-called third poll, so a sort of a small coalition of two centrist parties, so quite moderate and pro-EU, as well as centre-left, uh, what we would call the Labour Party here in Australia. Um, But uh, um, Italy, like most European nations, uh, is uh, a country where a lot of, shall we say, more mature people uh, live and vote. And this is why this guy is uh, a conservative party uh, with a conservative coalition that was able to get into power.
1: We have seen a lot of concern around the world about the future of LGBTQI rights in Italy, abortion rights, Um, when it comes to migrants, issues around that as well. Do you think we're going to see big changes that might threaten human rights in Italy?
3: Ah, This is a billion dollar question, of course. Uh, Now, it's a little known fact that both Italy and Australia adopt pretty much the very same policies when it comes to seaborne asylum seekers. So asylum seekers that try to reach either Australia or Italy via sea with a boat. Um, The only thing is that whereas Australia implements these policies uh, um, with South Pacific island nations, uh, Italy implements them with Libya, which is on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. And because Libya is ravaged by a civil war, which means that the government really doesn't have control of their own territory, um, then the policies that Rome implements are not, uh, numerically speaking, that is, uh, that successful in stemming these big numbers of asylum seekers by a sea. So they are promising to put a stop to that uh, and to adopt even harsher policies. Uh, but it's actually quite difficult to see how that would work because the Italian policies, like the Australian ones, they're very similar, are already really, really harsher, so it's hard to see how they can get even harsher. Um, When it comes to anti-abortion, on the other hand, yes, that is a position that is quite popular with some of the most conservative voters in Italy, much like everywhere else in the world, Um, but she, Georgia Maloney, that is, uh, has already promised not to change that. Uh, um, Gay rights, well, sexual minorities, uh, for example, same-sex people cannot legally get married in Italy. They have uh, uh, civil relationships. Uh, And I don't think that Giorgia Meloni and her coalition will change anything, which means that same-sex people which want to actually get married in the traditional sense uh, will have to wait for uh, a subsequent government for that.
1: What does this result mean for the rest of Europe? Because I also saw that Italy's former prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, has been re-elected to parliament. He's like an ally. Maybe you could even call him a mentor to Giorgia Meloni and a good friend of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. Could we see Italy start getting closer to Russia?
3: That's another good question. Um... Some of you might remember that Italy, with France, Germany, and the UK, the big European countries, uh, Italy was one of the strongest uh, uh, supporters of Ukraine politically and one of the strongest opposers of Russia after Russia invaded Ukraine uh, once again in 2022. So. She has already promised Giorgia Meloni not to change that particular approach that Italy is now becoming quite well known for. It's difficult to see an increase in support for Ukraine, but Italy under a government led by Giorgia Meloni will not back from the support that it's been giving to Ukraine.
1: And what about for us here in Australia? Do you think, Gabriele, there's any impact for us, Italy having a new government?
3: Joe Biden, US president, has already warned the US people about not being too optimistic about the future because of what has happened with the Italian election. So let us remember that we are talking, Italy, about the eighth largest economy in the world, the seventh largest uh, exporter on the planet. When it comes to Australia, the two countries have quite cordial, quite uh, positive relations which are getting deeper and deeper, year uh, by year. So while much will not change uh, in terms of relations between italy and australia we can only hope that this positive trend of getting closer diplomatically and politically speaking between the two countries will actually continue to go on even with a far-right government with Giorgio Meloni at the head of the coalition. That is, of course, what we all hope.
1: There's definitely going to be a lot more commentary around this. We'll be keeping track of it. Dr. Gabriele Abondanza from the University of Sydney, thank you very much for your
3: time. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Hack. On Triple J.
1: And some messages coming through. Someone says, I wonder what the left-wing politicians have been doing wrong in Italy that's resulted in people deciding to vote for the far right. And another person says, Promises and policies don't mean much these days. They always go out the window after the election is over. Pack.
4: I'm going to find an opal to pay for my Tinder premium so I can get get, get some more exposure That's a bit further abroad.
3: On Triple J.
1: All right, enough with the economics, with the international politics. It's time to head to the outback. We're going to opal mining country. For ages, opal mining's been an industry that's remote, pretty secretive, and just like the opals, a bit rough around the edges. It's got its own traditions and superstitions. Really interesting. But some young miners are shaking things up. They wanna bring opal mining into the 21st century. How are they gonna do that? Well, reporter Melanie Groves has more from Charleville in outback Queensland. It captures, uh, you know, the cycles of the earth
4: through time and it creates this stone.
0: It's mid-afternoon in outback Queensland. I'm sitting 10 metres underground, away from the flies, the harsh sun and almost any civilisation. Yeah, so I'll
4: just take out a section of here.
0: I'm here with Josiah Kotzer and his mate Lisa van Heinegen and for them it's just another day digging for opals.
4: What happens is the water from the the rain comes through the earth, you know, over millions of years and picks up all the silica within the sandstone and then it deposits that in rocks that have like a void space or it doesn't have to be rocks, it could just be like plant matter and stuff, petrified wood or anything with a cavity in it, or like a wormhole or something, and that silica will
0: deposit there and crystallise over millions of years. We're in Yawa, which is in southwest Queensland. Most days, Josiah and Lisa descend into the earth. They're holding handheld jackhammers and shovels. They're hoping to strike colour. And they're using some pretty cool technology to make opals more accessible right across the world. But we're about as far away from Silicon Valley as you could get, and that's just the way Josiah wants it. The whole world
4: started to shift, and I thought, that's it, I'm getting out of the city. I was in Sydney at the time. And I, um, yeah, headed inland to the middle of the outback to chase colourful rocks under the
1: dirt. The reveal!
4: The reveal!
5: Wait, I turn it off?
0: As for his best mate Lisa who was born in the Netherlands but grew up in Spain, it's a slightly different story.
5: I met Josiah in Byron Bay a year and a bit ago now. He had this motorbike and I fell in love with the motorbike and then he just took it to Yawa. <laughs> so I was like, okay, no, I really want that motorbike. So I called him and he says, "Yeah, okay, you can buy it, but you got to come to Yawa to to get it to pick it up." So I come out here 10 hours inland from the coast. And I say, well, I'll just pick up the bike and um, leave in three days. You know, I'll just see Josiah for a few days and and go away, because there's nothing to do here in this little town. A month and a half later, I was still here, and living the best life, this is such a special place. And even now, like, it's a year has passed, and it's still surprising me every day how just incredible it is here.
0: Mining isn't usually considered particularly green, but Lisa and Josiah are living off-grid and their underground mine is powered by solar.
4: I've got hardly any bills. You know, the power is free, got it from the sun, and I've got a garden growing. It'll get a bit bigger soon, so probably I'll eat my own harvest or my own food, and my overheads are really low.
0: And when they're not digging for opals, Josiah spends his time replicating the scenery around him in a virtual reality.
4: We've scanned this opal and we've put it in the metaverse. So it's got a, it's digital twin.
0: Their mind site is slowly being built into the metaverse. So anyone with an avatar can walk around the virtual site and check out 3D renderings of the opals.
4: It allows things to be gamified, allows for conferences or virtual meetings and eventually, yeah, stores, virtual stores.
0: I'm looking at the bench and I'm looking at the screen and I can see the same opal on both. But if you walked around that opal on the screen, you could also see it from a different angle. So what have you done here? Yeah, so that's that's in the
4: metaverse and that's there and anyone can visit this metaverse and have a look at this Opal. And the beauty of this is it means that, you know, the whole world can engage with this Opal and, and see what it looks like, you know, from their home. We're, like, engaging with different forms of technology, blockchain, cryptocurrency and NFTs. So, yeah, we're digitising Opal so that, you know, it can be
0: its its digital twin can be traded in this virtual setting. It's still in the early stages, but just as not just creating a virtual yawa or digitising opals. He's also trying to create the platforms where the trade can happen.
4: So shopping in a virtual space that would allow the real world asset to be purchased in the virtual space and then delivered to your doorstep.
0: Laurel Papworth is a metaverse expert and mentor. She reckons for the average punter, the metaverse is just humming away in the background, slowly building up until it's dropped in your laps and will become a big part of everyone's lives. This is the democratization of those kind of trading platforms. If you remember
2: back in the early days, the only people that had websites were the big companies, you know, the Coca-Colas of the world or the governments of the world. And then gradually we have little
0: stores having Etsy stores and Shopify stores and maybe a Facebook page with a store on it. But back in the hour, being tech-savvy can only go so far when it comes to dealing with the challenges of life in the bush.
4: The next town only has like a couple hundred people in it, so like two swipes and you're out. So I'm going to find Opal to pay for my Tinder premium so I can get 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 more get, get some more exposure and it's a bit further abroad.
0: Not that these two, Josiah and Lisa, have any plans on changing. I don't know if it's because of the energy of the Opal
5: that's in the town, but everyone here is so creative. Everyone has different stories and and just, there's just another adventure to live, to go on every single day. pack
1: on Triple J. Yeah, Melanie Groves reporting there from Charleville. Really cool story. The premium subscriptions, I don't know how they work in the outback, but... You know, they're definitely after them. Someone on the text line, Andy, says, My engagement ring is an opal. They're each so amazingly unique.
3: Hack. Uh, He was saving body parts such as uh, skulls and uh, skeletons.
1: On Triple J. There's a new show on Netflix that everyone's talking about, and it's not all good stuff. It's called Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, and it's about the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer who murdered 17 boys and men from 1978 to 1991. His victims were mainly people of colour. The crimes are horrific, unconscionable. But this isn't the first show or movie made about this criminal. There've been six. And it's got people asking, what's the point of this stuff? Because the makers claim it's about giving a voice to victims, but many are saying it's just about profiting from trauma. I'm keen to know, have you seen this show? Maybe you're refusing to watch it. Message in, 0439757555. There clearly is a market for this stuff. Why are we so obsessed with it? And what about the victims and their families? With me now is Associate Professor Tyrone Kirchengast from the University of Sydney Law School. He's an international expert on crime victims' rights. Tyrone, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Are oh, you welcome? Were you surprised when you heard another show had been made about Jeffrey Dahmer?
6: Uh, not at all, really. This is a uh, pretty uh, horrendous series of uh, offences. Uh, it's, it's always going to attract um, you know, media speculation, investigative journalism. Psychologists, psychiatrists, of course, are going to be interested and in people generally in the mind, the state of mind of such a person. How did somebody so seriously uh, fall off the rails, so to speak? Uh, but also Hollywood, you know, it's the fodder of Hollywood. It's uh, something that they, uh, they uh, sensationalize and, and uh, will make movies about and there will probably be more. Uh, uh, movies to
1: come. And I mean, we know with documentaries, they often do a really solid job of exploring these issues with facts. But I'm wondering, is the drama a dangerous element that changes things?
6: Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the present series of Monster goes, does go into uh, the history of Jeffrey Dahmer's childhood. That's already been explored across various movies. But this 10-part uh, series goes into the lives of victims, members uh, of his community, uh, people in the building that he, that he lived with. Uh, there were criminal justice inadequacies uh, that the, uh, that the uh, series tells of. Uh, but w- whether or not it discloses anything new, anything that's not already on the record, well, I'm suspicious of that. Uh, I think it's more entertainment at this point than it is about uh, a a, a relevant analysis of information that is useful to us. I would say it's more for the sensationalised storytelling than anything else. They've also been rather selective with the information they've put forward. I mean, there were a large number of victims, a large number of affected people, so fair enough. They've got to be selective on some point, but uh, which victims get treatment and which victims do not is also very interesting.
1: We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I feel manipulated emotionally by this series. Another person, Lou from Belgrave, says, it's not only profiting off trauma, but also traumatizing the victims' families, the general public. And another person says, it's a depiction, but how accurate is it really? Well, I wanted to ask about that because, you know, they depict all sorts of things like scenes in courtrooms and stuff like that that depict some of the victims' families. And they say they didn't even know this series was happening. So there is this. Um, you know, really tricky, blurred line I've, I've heard you speak about with reality and drama.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the scenes, the courtroom scenes, those scenes that are already documented and uh, the courtroom TV that's readily available online, uh, those have been uh, d- depicted sort of scene by scene, you know, right down to the clothing of victims, uh, and it's quite realistic. Whilst other scenes, you know, going into the history of the victims, their engagement with drama, really a re-dramatization. I mean, no one really knows there what went on beyond what was admitted to uh, by Dharma. Uh, and uh, that's where you might get some quite selective and even creative storytelling. Uh, and, and that can be quite problematic. So you potentially then run into a problem of um, introducing, you know, false narratives uh, potentially uh, based, you know, elementally on reality, aspects of reality, but others are um, based on, I guess, Hollywood storytelling uh, for the purposes of drama, for the purposes of entertainment. And that would exacerbate, you would think, uh, any uh, trauma uh, that is felt by uh, potentially even victims of crime generally, victims of serious crime generally, but in particular those victims of Dharma and their family members.
1: And just quickly, we only have about 30 seconds left, Tyrone, but do victims have any legal rights in this situation?
6: Yeah, it's, it, it's a tricky area beyond defamation and where it's based in, uh, based in truth and fact. It's um, very difficult, perhaps, for victims to be able to uh, uh, action. Uh, but they may have a civil claim, potentially, on profits uh, against Netflix, but that's to be explored. Uh, you know, there is a, a legitimate basis of Hollywood and the entertainment industry uh, to base stories on facts. And if it's differentiated just enough from those facts, then perhaps they don't have that claim.
1: It's very interesting stuff, and we really appreciate your insight into this. Associate Professor Tyrone Kirchengas from the University of Sydney, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Pleasure. Hack on Triple J. <laughs> Some big responses and big opinions on all of those topics. It's been a very big show. That's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.